Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. We didn't actually know about the word polyamory until we actually Googled a uh, you know, relationship with more than one partner and the word polyamory came up and uh, that's how it all kind of began. This is Word Bomb, a TVO podcast. I'm Pippa Johnstone. And I'm Karina Palmatesta. Every episode, we talk about a word that's undergoing a moment of change. This week, we're talking about the word polyamory. The dictionary definition is having simultaneous close emotional relationships with two or more individuals. So this is like an alternative to monogamy. I actually think it might be helpful to just briefly talk about what polyamory isn't Mm -hmm. right off the top, Mm -hmm. um, because there are a lot of misconceptions. Polyamory isn't cheating. It isn't swinging. um, It isn't polygamy, which we'll get more into later. Totally. And it's worth developing a clear understanding of this concept because polyamory is on the rise in North America. Now, hard data on polyamorous relationships is actually really hard to come by. Statistics Canada doesn't collect information on polyamorous relationships, so the exact number of individuals practicing polyamory in Canada is kind of up in the air. But according to a major research paper on polyamory in Canada, pretty much the only major research project there is. Mm -hmm. Whose author I actually spoke to for this episode, so you'll meet him later. 82.4% of respondents to this survey agreed or strongly agreed that the number of people who identify as polyamorous in Canada is increasing. So at least within the polyamorous community, people have the sense that there are more people practicing and that it's more widely known. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the word polyamory itself. Mm -hmm. 1990 looks like the first instance of the word in print. It was used in an article in a neo-pagan periodical called Green Egg. Neo-pagan. Yeah, I know. And in the article, the author is basically describing the rules of the road of open relationships, which she uses more or less interchangeably with the word polyamorous. Although for a lot of people, these two terms are more distinct. And I feel like we've been wanting to do this word for the podcast for a while because it actually has really interesting etymological roots, Karina, doesn't it? Yeah, there's a fun thing about it, which is that it's a mashup of Greek and Latin, which is kind of unusual. Mm -hmm. So uh, poly is Greek. Amory is Latin, and together they combine to mean many loves. But if it was only Greek, it would have probably been something like polyeros. And then if it's Latin, it would probably be like multi-amory. Yeah, right. But here we've ended up with a bit of a Franken word um, because it's so new and it didn't kind of spring from like only Greek or only Latin roots a long time ago. It's a great example of what can happen to language around a new social movement. I kind of like the idea that like a new concept emerges and you have to like squish these sounds together from two distinct languages Mm -hmm. to kind of make up a new meaning. Yeah. And then once you get into the world of polyamory, there are so many other examples of new words that have cropped up because there are so many concepts within polyamory that need a word to encompass them. Yeah. 
And I think that's a really exciting linguistic landscape, the world of polyamory, because we're going to get into it later. But there are some really like interesting, funny, creative words. Uh, yeah, the guest that I interviewed likened it to mushrooms sprouting after a rain. It's just like everything's just kind of springing up around one central concept. It was a nice earthy metaphor that I liked. <laughs> That's kind of cool because it's like bountiful and almost random. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I interviewed for this episode Jenny Ewan. She is a reporter for the Toronto Sun and she's the author of the 2018 book Polyamorous Living and Loving More. Uh, you heard her voice off the top describing her own relationships. So she has two partners, one of whom she's legally married to and has a child with. And when we were talking, she almost immediately moved past the word polyamory. Our structure is actually called a V. So um, I have two partners and I'm in the middle or I'm called the hinge. And they aren't romantically involved with each other, but they do have an emotional connection. So it was kind of just trial and error. My two partners did a lot of um, emotional work with each other, talking out their insecurities. If jealousy arose, uh, I'm kind of lucky being in the middle where I don't really have to deal with a lot of that. But um, over time, their their bond and um, friendship and co-partners, they called each other co, as in co-partners, a very cute nickname, uh, has just evolved into something very, very natural. It just feels like uh, our, our family, a normal family. Uh, so right away, we've got a V, we've got a hinge, we've got a co. Yeah, and so many more terms came up when we were researching this episode. Yeah, let's talk about a few good ones. I really liked compersion. One of my favorites. Yeah, it's not a word that a lot of people know, but uh, it's like the opposite of jealousy. So this uh, feeling of joy when seeing a loved one be happy with someone other than you. And that's another basically brand new word. Um origins a bit disputed but it was apparently coined in a san francisco commune in the 80s that's a pretty a pretty interesting one mm -hmm. um yeah it's kind of a foreign concept because i think a lot of the time when monogamous people look at polyamory they're like but don't you get jealous yeah and i'm um, for sure jealousy is something that a lot of people talk about within polyamory but compersion is sort of like this cool like I'm happy because you're happy. Yeah, it's a, actually a very lovely sentiment, I think. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, another word that I really like is polycule. So I've got friends who are polyamorous and they'll say my polycule, sort of like a little family of interlocking relationships. Mm -hmm. And that polycule is a portmanteau between polyamorous and molecule. So it sort of compares the structure of polyamorous relationships to like that science class diagram of a molecule with all its connections branching out in different ways. And that's sort of a perfect metaphor for polyamory. Exactly. Like some arrangements will have a primary partner and then there might be secondary partners. But other uh, poly people have no hierarchy in the relationship and everyone is considered equal. So it really is diverse the way people arrange their relationships. Yeah, there's not really one set model for how polyamory has to work. Mm -hmm. It makes sense because uh, there's this need to clarify, to find new ways to describe what you're doing. Because think about the way that I can say, for instance, this is my boyfriend or this is my husband. And you immediately have a pretty good idea of what I mean and the rules of our partnership without me having to elaborate. Yeah, because like monogamy is assumed and we already have this huge vocabulary of words that belong to monogamy. Yeah, and a whole set of assumptions. Totally. But polyamorous people don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. And that creates this super fertile ground for language creation. Full of mushrooms. Exactly, the mushroom metaphor. Yeah. 
And like Jenny Ewan told me, there is no roadmap for polyamorous relationships. And every polyamorous question that I've ever been asked, I'm kind of like shrugging. I'm like, ah, I'm no expert. So uh, I, I just know what works for me and for us in our situation. But our situation is, is unique because no two polyamorous families often look alike. Like even if they have three or four or five or how many other people and are configured in the same sort of way. It's just because everyone's so different and every relationship is so different that um, how would you be able, there's no one size that fits all. So I think that communities come up with these words because yeah, you, you need your own sort of language to navigate what, what this means uh, outside of what society dictates. Yeah. And there are some beautiful things about polyamory, but there's also a lot of struggles that go along with it. And the fact that poly relationships are still considered unconventional means that it's difficult to explain. And there's a lot of stigma and misconceptions that come up in society around the idea of being polyamorous. I feel like there's been a lot of polygamy stuff in pop culture right now that people tend to get confused with polyamory. Mm -hmm. Shows like uh, Sister Wives or Big Love. Yeah. And because the two words polygamy and polyamory sound a bit alike and because they both involve a more unconventional departure from a dyadic relationship. And Karina, that word dyadic comes up a bunch in this episode, so maybe let's just define it. Right. A dyad is a Greek word for a group of two people, so the smallest possible social unit oh. that you can have. And a dyadic relationship just means a monogamous relationship between two individuals. So a dyadic family would be kind of that typical nuclear family with two parents and children. Polyamory and polygamy are both examples of non-dyadic relationships, but the similarities pretty much end there. Definitely. And uh, let's clear any confusion right up. Polygamy does not equal polyamory. No. In fact, while most polyamorous people abbreviate the word polyamory to poly, some people are even more specific and they'll say something like polya or polyam just to make it even more clear. So let's talk about a few of the differences. Polygamy is almost always limited to heterosexual relationships, uh, usually but not always between one straight man and multiple straight women. Mm -hmm. It's actually an umbrella term. So if you want to get more specific, a man with multiple wives is polygyny and a woman with multiple husbands is polyandry. Uh, and there are more differences within that. So polygamy has been around for a long time. It's been practiced pretty much since the creation of the institution of marriage. And it's currently legal in about a quarter of sovereign states around the world, most of them being in Africa and Asia. And although polygamy can often be linked to cultural or economic reasons, there's oftentimes a religious aspect. Here in North America, most people's first thought when polygamy comes up is Mormonism. Yeah. So here in Canada, the Bountiful case in British Columbia is pretty fresh in people's memories, probably mm -hmm. still. So in 2011, our anti-polygamy laws were tested in the BC Supreme Court case against two leaders of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the settlement of Bountiful, BC. So Winston Blackmore and James Oler were charged with polygamy. And it was found that Blackmore alone had married 24 women, many of whom were underage as young as 15, and that he had fathered 149 children. Wow. That number kind of changes depending on where you look, but yeah. that's the most consistent one I found. Right. And Chief Justice Robert Bauman, in his ruling in the B.C. Supreme Court in that case in 2011, he upheld the anti-polygamy law. So he ruled that it's illegal to have multiple marriages, but he clarified 
in that case that polyamory is totally legal.、Mm-hmm. So this was a huge relief to much of the polyamorous community, and the Canadian Polyamory Advocacy Association (CPAA) made. That day of the ruling, which was November twenty third, National Polyamory Day, and that's still celebrated every year. All this to say that it's important to be precise when you're using this set of words. Totally, and they mean really different things. And the fact that they get confused is a contributing factor to that stigma that polyamorous people face that we talked about. And when I spoke to Jenny Yuen, she told me about a few of those roadblocks. The challenges that polyamorous people have are twofold. So they they come from outside the way the society looks at them, and then also、um, the way that they have to deal within their own relationships. So from the outside, people might see them as it's an excuse to cheat. They can't commit,、uh, that they're promiscuous, or that they're in a bad relationship, or that it's never going to work. The other part is within relationships, like the challenges are. That it's very time-consuming. It can be emotionally draining. We actually call that polysaturation when you have、uh, too much emotional work that's on your shoulders, or you don't have enough me time, or that、uh, there's too many partners, that sort of thing. I feel like this is a huge part of polyamory that people don't know about or don't talk about. Like. How do you find the time <laughs> to be polyamorous? I find、yeah. one relationship already takes up so much of my time. Exhausting, exhausting. <laughs>、uh, a lot of poly people I know, anecdotally from friends, or when you look at like the polyamorous Reddit page, they'll use shared calendars to keep everyone's schedule straight.、Um, I saw this meme on that polyamory Reddit thread that said, "Every polyamorous relationship is hierarchical." Google Calendar is primary, and everyone else is secondary. I never thought about how technology and like the cloud must make it way easier to be poly. <laughs> oh, totally! I know poly friends who have a Google Calendar, and everybody's sort of a different color,、mm, and they'll、yeah. be able to book off time for、Ooh. dates, or even just like I need some me time. Right? This is really scratching my spreadsheet itch. Like I'm not polyamorous, but I feel like I would really enjoy that aspect. <laughs> I think you're just type A enough that you'd thrive. Yeah, yeah, I'd really project manage those relationships. I know, like the stigma of polyamory is that it is like sort of like laissez faire about relationships, but it's actually incredibly regimented in my yeah, anecdotal be, experience. Yeah, you have to be really thoughtful about it.、Mm-hmm. I feel like the uncharitable view of this is like. Oh, life is so hard. Woe is me!、Oh, like me and all of my lovers. Like it's, it's so difficult to keep up with. Like it's a. It sounds a little humble braggy. Like, I hear sometimes, that. <laughs> I guess that's totally true. But、um, there are also other more serious challenges that people face. Yeah, definitely. Jenny spoke to me about how,、uh, in researching for her book, she came across people in Canada who were kicked out of their families for coming out as polyamorous, who were ostracized from their societies. Not all poly people have an easy time in or outside of the poly community, and a lot of that comes down to privilege. Yeah, it's really important to keep that in mind.、Mm-hmm. Here's Jenny. By and large, we we often see in mainstream media the image of three pairs of white feet poking out from under a white bedsheet, and、um, that really doesn't include a lot of the other parts of the community. So that means people of color, people that have disabilities, people that identify as trans or non-binary,、uh, or indigenous peoples. They really need to change up those stock photos.、Mm-hmm. I can picture that stock photo so perfectly. I feel like I've seen that above a headline about polyamory or open relationships so much. Yeah, every time.
Privilege was also a really big topic of conversation when I interviewed John Paul E. Boyd. He's a family lawyer, arbitrator, and mediator who practices in Alberta and BC. And he, like I said, is the author of the only large-scale study of polyamorous relationships in Canada. That we mentioned before. Mm -hmm. The study is called Perceptions of Polyamory in Canada, and it was published by the Canadian Research Institute for Law and the Family in 2017. One of the things that he told me he was most surprised by when he was authoring that study was the demographics on polyamorous individuals. So sort of like, who is the average polyamorous person in Canada? Yeah, building that demographic profile. Here's what he said when I asked him. I had no expectations at all. In fact, uh, the results were, were quite surprising. Uh, when we dug into the data in a little more detail, we found that most of the people who identify as polyamorous also identify as female, about 59.4%. We discovered that only 37% identified as heterosexual, whereas the remainder identified it in a variety of manners, such as bisexual, pansexual, polysexual, homosexual. We discovered that people who identify as polyamorous are far better educated than the Canadian population as a whole. They tend to be younger than the Canadian population as a whole, and they tend to have higher incomes than the Canadian population as a whole. I don't know about you, but for me, this is super consistent with polyamorous people I've met. Uh, female, queer, educated, young, white, high-earning. Uh, to a large extent, yes. And then I also feel like I know a lot of artists. So let's scratch the high earning part from that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. you pretty much got it. Yeah. I think Karina and I both know several polyamorous friends in common sometimes. Yeah. Um, but neither of us identify as polyamorous ourselves, we should just say. Yes. Jean-Paul and I discussed what that demographic means for the status of polyamorous people in Canada. You know, these people occupy, in general... A very privileged place in Canadian society and I think that you could interpret the data or interpret the prevailing demographic status of our respondents as a status that gives them the freedom to pursue the highly introspective contemplative reflection that's involved in making what is for the average Canadian radical choices with respect to your gender identity your sexual orientation and your relationship orientation. I would imagine that it would be very difficult for a person of color who is perhaps a single parent and perhaps dealing with a disability of some nature, it would be difficult for somebody who's facing systemic discrimination to have the platform from which to explore divergent relationship orientation. Yeah, and, and Jenny kind of got into this as well. There are certain barriers to even accessing polyamory. Like just from a logistical perspective, like we were saying before, it takes more time, more money, more effort to date two people or three people rather than one. But it goes way beyond that because you need the social safety net and a certain level of support and bandwidth and energy to accomplish this. Totally, which are all things enjoyed by young, white, educated, high-earning people in urban centers. Yeah. Kim Tolbert of the University of Alberta wrote in Critical Polyamorist that she finds the word polyamory a, quote, imperfect translation of what she really wants to do. 
And she said that there are so many polyamorous elements in Indigenous family structures and that, quote, she can't practice in this society the kind of non-monogamy that her ancestors practiced, which was called tiaspe. So this is a Dakota word that loosely translates to extended family that didn't center a couple or the nuclear family model that was imposed on Indigenous peoples. Right. And more than just criticism, there are a lot of legal implications of practicing non-monogamy. So Jenny told me in our interview, she is legally married to one of her partners, but if she then went and married or had even a marriage-like ceremony with her other partner, that would be breaking the law. Since John Paul is a lawyer, we actually had a really interesting conversation about the technical legal barriers and issues around polyamory. And one thing he emphasized to me several times was how the public perception of polyamory is that it's sort of a kink or a fetish, mm -hmm. like this sort of trivial sexualized thing that some people engage in. Whereas in reality, as he's seen firsthand in his own uh, family law practice and his research, being polyamorous takes a huge amount of thought and introspection and care. Because not even thinking about sort of the emotional labor involved, there are a lot of sticky legal issues that they run into. Here's John Paul. And so polyamory is really only the next front on this continuing and accelerating change that we see within what it is that Canadians think family is composed of. But the level of change that needs to occur to give polyamorous families equal status with dyadic families is vast. I haven't even talked about things such as expanding school forms so that people with guardianship privileges are more than two individuals or even more critical matters such as immigration and how one sponsors a spouse into Canada. So it's not an overstatement to say that virtually every area in which the law interacts with the individual or with the family needs to be updated to accommodate people in polyamorous relationships. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. So how does John Paul see this kind of large-scale change happening? Well, that's what I asked him, and he said that the place to start would be some radical redefinitions of words that we think we know <laughs> and that are really precisely defined in the eyes of the law, which doesn't sound like an easy task. Hmm. Yeah, it would be an enormous intellectual and practical challenge for the drafters of new legislation. But remember that all legislation is a reflection of social norms and governments wish to affect those norms. And so I imagine that were I to sit down and begin drafting, I would be required to begin thinking about what are the legal thresholds that have to be passed to be a spouse. We know what the legal threshold is to be a married spouse. You have to tie the knot. But we have a criminal code that criminalizes the marriage of more than two people. And so you have to think about what do terms like guardian, parent, child, spouse, partner, what do they all mean and how do we define them? So this is kind of like when same-sex marriage was legalized and the term marriage was redefined as something that doesn't mean a union between one man and one woman. Right. Changing the meaning of a word like that is something that feels really hard to do, but when you think about it in the context of all of history, people can be really amazingly adaptable to. Pretty much every episode we've done. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the thesis of our podcast. <laughs> That's the big idea. Like John Paul pointed out while we were speaking, 
we only got a uniform federal divorce act in Canada in 1968. Oh. Like, it's pretty recent. Mm -hmm. Same-sex marriage has only been legal on the federal level in Canada since 2005. Jeez. These things were legalized a little earlier at the provincial level, but some provinces were still holdouts by the time that they were legalized federally. That's surprisingly recent. Yeah. Even though the dyadic norm has been so thoroughly entrenched in Western culture, and by that I mean the heterosexual dyadic norm, you know, leave it to Beaver, with June and Ward Cleaver and their sons being raised in a middle-class suburban community. In the last 50 years, the pace of change has just been astonishing. And it's something that I mention to people whenever they're feeling particularly forlorn about the prospect of meaningful change in our society. I think he's completely right. And we're definitely starting to see movement in terms of court cases. So in June of last year, for instance, two men and one woman in a polyamorous relationship were declared legal parents of the woman's child by a court um, that was in Newfoundland and Labrador. That's a huge win for the polyamorous community. Mm -hmm. The justice wrote in his decision that their family was, quote, stable and loving, and that society is continuously changing and family structures are changing along with it. So it's so nice to hear acknowledgement from a court of law that setups like this can be stable and loving. Ultimately, it's just ordinary people trying to get the relationship model they do best in, but also do it responsibly and sustainably and equitably. I think it's really cool that people are finding ways to this lifestyle and, you know, starting to clear these stigmas and the legal and social hurdles that we talked about. Mm -hmm. But we should be mindful that even though the word polyamory was coined, like we said, in the 90s, non-dyadic relationship models have existed on these lands that we're recording on for longer than Europeans have been here. As I mentioned in uh, that quote from Kim Tallbear earlier, so with that said, um, we'd like to do a land acknowledgement to close out our show, which is recorded on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Métis, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Word Bomb is produced by me, Pippa Johnstone. And me, Karina Palmatesta. We'd like to thank Jenny Ewan and John Paul Boyd for their interviews. Thank you so much. And you can follow our show at Word Bomb Podcast on Instagram and at tvo.org slash wordbomb. And thank you to Hannah Sung, manager of podcasts at TVO, and the rest of the TVO team for all their support. And if you like our show, please help us get the word out by telling your friends, posting on social media, or giving us a five-star review on iTunes. And thank you for listening. 